Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. First Peter 1, 3-13. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, You love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Uh, Let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Father, we believe that you created all things through the power of your word. We believe that you have the power to raise Jesus from the dead. We believe that you have the power through your word to raise us from the spiritual dead. We believe that through the power of your word, you are conforming sinners into the image of your beloved son. Lord, we pray that you would bless us this morning. We pray that your word would not return void. We pray that you would help keep me from error and help me to rightly divide your word. And we pray that your spirit would open eyes and hearts to hear the beauty of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Good morning, Harvest Lakeshore. My name is Mitch Helmkamp, and it is a privilege uh, to be here with you this morning. If you haven't already turned in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and while you turn there, let me just say that I, I first met Pastor Jamie back in 2016. He was a church planning resident at Harvest Granger, and I was an intern there, and we happened to share the same office. So we really got to know each other then. I really love Pastor Jamie, and since then, since 2016, God has really blessed 
both of us. So after my internship, I went off to seminary where I met my beautiful wife, Alicia, and we now have a son named Roman who is almost 11 months old. After I graduated from seminary, we moved back up to the Michiana area. I took a job at uh, Gospel City, uh, full-time staff there, and, and I get to be the director of our theology classes there. And I, we love our church. I, I love my job. Um, so God has really blessed me since meeting Pastor Jamie, and God's really blessed him with all of you. Um, and so it's just a privilege to be here. I, I know Pastor Jamie loves the Lord. He, he loves his church, and he loves, you know, he really has a heart for the lost. So it's, it's an honor to fill in for him this morning while he is on vacation. Um, so the passage we're going to be looking at today is 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 13. Before we dive into the text, I want to give us a little background so that we understand who the Apostle Peter is writing to. So the Christians that Peter is writing to lived under the dictatorship of the Roman Emperor Nero. And if you know anything about Emperor Nero, you know that he was an evil, evil man. And I just want to give you an idea of the depravity of the man who was in charge of the whole Roman Empire, just so you can get a taste of what these Christians were living in. So Nero was so evil that he killed his own parents just so he could take the throne he, because he was impatient. He killed his own parents. Nero was so evil that he killed his pregnant wife. He was so evil that he tried to marry his own sister, and she refused, so he killed her as well. He was so evil that he wanted to destroy Rome and, and so that he could rebuild it and earn a name for himself. So uh, uh, Rome set on fire, and obviously that didn't gain him a lot of popularity, so he blamed Christians for the great fire of the city of Rome. And therefore, then he made, Rome, uh, he made Christianity illegal throughout the Roman Empire and really incentivized persecution. He was so evil that he would have these garden parties at his palace, and obviously they didn't have electricity then. And so in order to light the gardens, he would light Christians on fire uh, as he impaled them on a stake, and that would provide the light for the party. And so I know that the, worst, the reason we're starting this way is because these are, this is the time that these Christians are living in. This is the political arena, the political environment that these Christians are living in. So Peter writes to these Christians who are being persecuted, they are suffering, they are terrified, and ultimately they are tempted to blend in with the world rather than live for Jesus. So Peter writes to encourage them. And first, notice what he does not say. He does not say overthrow the government. He doesn't say hide in your basement. He doesn't say flee to another country. Instead, look at verse 13. In chapter 1, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, consider, Christian, you who are suffering, consider the hope that you have because of your salvation. Don't let the sufferings of this present time distract you from tasting and seeing and feeling and living according to the hope of eternal glory that you have because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the present sufferings, while they are intense now, they are merely a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that is coming for those who believe in Jesus. And so in our world, we, we might not be persecuted to the death for living for Christ, but we do live in a world of COVID confusion and tension, 
racial tension, economic uncertainty, political chaos, wars of wars and rumors of wars. And that's not to mention the, your own personal trials, your own personal struggles that don't make the news. So Harvest Lakeshore, this morning, we need to obey this command as well. We need to set our hope fully on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the question is, how? The trials of this world are so pressing, so intense, so urgent at times, so painful. How can we set our hope fully on a salvation that at times seems so distant? And I don't know what trials you're going through. I don't know what burdens you're carrying in with you this morning. I don't know what trials you've come out of but are still healing from. But I do know that if you are in Christ, your current sufferings are only temporary. But your hope of joy inexpressible for all of eternity is certain because of Christ. So let's dive in and consider the hope that we have because of Jesus. Our first point for this morning is, in the midst of various trials, set your hope fully on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you look down at verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter starts with offering up a praise of blessing to God. How does Peter expect people to praise God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials? And the reason is because God, according to his great mercy, has solved our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not our political leaders. Our biggest problem is not the gas prices or economic uncertainty. Our biggest problem is not even things like Pride Month or the culture. Our biggest problem is our sin. Your biggest problem is your sin. My biggest problem is my sin. And when I say it's a big problem, I mean it's a really, really big problem. Because of our sin, we're not just sick in need of healing. We're not just broken in need of fixing. We're not just dirty in need of cleansing. We are dead in need of a resurrection. Ephesians 2.1 makes this explicitly clear when it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Therefore, this is our biggest problem. Sin makes us dead. The wages of sin is death. We're all born spiritually dead, and because of sin, we will all physically die. This is our biggest problem. If you're lying dead, if you're physically dead in a casket, your biggest problem is not how your hair looks or your makeup or what you're wearing or the view you'll have from your grave. Your biggest problem is that you're dead. And likewise, our biggest problem spiritually in this world is that we are all born spiritually dead, alienated from God, the giver of life. But look at back, but look at back at verse 3. Our biggest problem has been solved. You who are dead have been born again. You who are spiritually dead now have spiritual life. You who had no hope in this world other than death because of your sin have been born again to a living hope. And of course, this is all possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that our God has the power to raise the dead which is really good news for people who are spiritually dead. 
And so he died the death we deserve to die. He conquered sin and death, and he rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him will be risen with him to life eternal. So Harvest Lakeshore, do you believe that Jesus died on a cross as a payment for your sins? And do you believe that God rose him from the dead on the third day? If you believe this, then his death is your death and his life is your life. You have been born again, raised from the dead to everlasting life. You have been born again because of his great mercy to a living hope, a hope that will never die no matter what trials you're going through. So no matter what trials you're facing in this life, set your hope fully on the fact that your biggest problem has been solved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Point number two this morning, in the midst of various trials, set your hope on your heavenly inheritance. Set your hope on your heavenly inheritance. So look back at verse four. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So as believers, we've been born again to everlasting life. And this is really good news. But imagine if God Through the gift of salvation, we were born again to live forever. But the gift of salvation did not include a place to live that life for eternity. We would just be floating as eternal nomads in limbo forever and ever. Suddenly, the gift of salvation doesn't sound so good. But if you look back at verse 4, behold the beauty of the gospel. God has not only given us the gift of eternal life, our gift of salvation includes a place to live out that life forever and ever. Now this is similar to Israel's exodus from Egypt. God, the way God saved Israel from Egypt, biblical authors often compare that as a paradigm to help us understand the glories of our salvation through the gospel of Jesus. So if you consider the exodus from Egypt, God's people had been in physical slavery for 400 years, but God rescued them, freed them from slavery, and brought them out of Egypt. And when he, res- he rescued them, brought them out of Egypt, rescued them from physical slavery, he didn't just leave them homeless to wander, out, wander around forever and ever, although they did wander for 40 years because of their sin. Eventually, he delivered them into the promised land. So not only did he give them freedom, not only did they, he give them new life, he gave them a place to live that life in the form of the promised land. And throughout the Old Testament, the promised land is often referred to as Israel's inheritance. We see this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Joshua, over and over, etc. And so an inheritance is a gift passed down from father to son. So it makes sense for the biblical authors to refer to the promised land as an inheritance because it was a gift from father God to his son Israel. Israel certainly did not earn it. But if we look back at our text in 1 Peter, Peter uses this word inheritance in verse 4 intentionally because he wants his readers to consider how our inheritance through the gospel is so much greater than Israel's inheritance through the Exodus. So let's just consider some of the many ways that our inheritance through the gospel is even greater than Israel's inheritance through the Exodus. So our, our inheritance is greater in its nature in the promised land, 
was a, a land flowing with milk and honey. But this doesn't even come anywhere close to our inheritance, which is in the heavenly kingdom of God. For in heaven there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering, no disease or death or evil. We will never be hungry or hot or cold or stressed or anxious or sad or mad. We will have heavenly emotions and a heavenly body and heavenly relationships as we live under our heavenly king forever and ever. The streets will be gold. The glory of God will be so bright that there will be no need for a sun. The promised land was great, but our inheritance is greater. Our inheritance is also greater in its security. So once the Israelites finally received their inheritance, they had to fend off the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Moabites and eventually the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But if you look back at verse 4, our inheritance as Christians is so much more secure. For the Christian, our inheritance is kept in heaven. No Philistines, no Canaanites will be able to steal us from our inheritance in heaven. Satan won't be able to touch it even. For heaven is the safest place imaginable. Number three, our inheritance is greater in its durability. In this world, just like in the promised land, in our world, everything fades. Everything perishes. Everything breaks. Everything wears down. Our bodies get old and tired and weary. Our houses get dirty and broken down. Our cars don't stay new. They don't even keep the new car smell. Our shoes definitely don't stay clean. Just this week, my hot water heater broke. And surprise, there goes a thousand bucks. In this world, everything fades, everything breaks. But in heaven, our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It will be better than we can imagine, and it will last forever. In this life, even the greatest things tend to fade. But in, our, in heaven, our inheritance will not only be better than our hearts can even imagine, it will last forever and ever, and our ability to enjoy it will last forever and ever. It will be joy to the fullest. That's what eternal life means. It doesn't just refer to the quantity. It refers to the quality. Life in heaven will be life eternal, life to the fullest because of what Jesus has prepared for those who love him. Lastly, our inheritance is greater than Israel's in its certainty. So the promised land was a great blessing. But think about the Israelites who died in the wilderness and never got to enjoy it. Think about even Moses died in the wilderness and never got to enter the promised land. And even the ones who did, they enjoyed it for a little while and they all died. It doesn't matter how great your inheritance is. If you die before you receive it, you'll not be able to enjoy it. I love to follow sports, and just this week, I've gotten notifications on my phone of, like, multiple athletes who have died, young professional athletes, like 25, 26, people who have made millions of dollars, people who lived their entire life to be what they were, to earn the money that they did, and if you die at 25, you don't even get the chance to enjoy it. But Christian, behold what it says in verse 5. Not only do you have a glorious inheritance that is safe and secure, you are being guarded and preserved by the power of God to guarantee that you will receive your inheritance one day. Not only is your inheritance kept safely in heaven, you are being guarded by God. 
by the power of God, the, the same God who had the power to create the universe, the same God who has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, the same God who has the power to sustain the universe by the word of his power, the same God who parted the Red Sea. Just consider the all-powerful God that we believe in, and it is his power that is preserving you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? So Harvest Lakeshore, I don't know what trials you are currently enduring. You might be stressed about the, the instability of our country. You might be stressed about the instability of our economy, the instability of your retirement fund or your health or your home. Nothing in this world is, is guaranteed to last. But be encouraged, if you are in Christ, then your life and your inheritance are being guarded by the power of God kept in heaven safely for you. Set your hope on this. In the midst of various trials, set your hope on your heavenly inheritance. Number three, number three for this morning, in the midst of various trials, set your hope fully on your reasons for rejoicing. Set your hope fully on your reasons for rejoicing. So look back at verse six. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in these four verses, Peter gives us at least three reasons why the gospel enables us to rejoice in the midst of suffering, why the gospel gives us reasons to rejoice in the midst of our various trials. And before we look at those reasons, I want to tell you about one of the biggest trials in my life, and it's a trial of chronic back pain. And so ever since I was 16 years old, I've, I've really been in pain just about every day of my life. It started with just some constant tightness in my lower back, but through college it progressed to be a, a nerve pain that stretched up into my neck and all the way down into my ankles at times when it was at its worst. Sitting was just excruciating. Sitting in class, it was so painful that I would, I would be sweating. I was in so much pain. I was so uncomfortable. Sleeping was really difficult. Multiple, I mean, nights in a row, no matter how tired I was, I would sit, I would lay in my bed at night just in too much pain to be able to fall asleep, just begging God that he would just let me sleep, let me fall asleep, that he would take the pain away long enough for me to be able to escape the pain and get some rest. And... Really, the, the physical pain was hard, but the, just the emotional exhaustion and the spiritual uh, exhaustion and the physical exhaustion was, was by far the hardest. And, and I loved playing sports and, in high school and college, and so not being able to do the things anymore the, the way I loved. I mean, it was stripping of my identity. It made it hard to enjoy being social. I mean, there's just so many ways that the physical pain had a cascading effect on so many other areas of my life, because when you're always in pain, it affects everything. And to this day, doctors don't know exactly why, 
what causes the pain. The severity ebbs and flows. I've had worse seasons, and honestly, when I was interning, sharing an office with Pastor Jamie, that was probably the hardest time. So he could probably remember me laying on the ground in our office doing my work, or uh, laying on my stomach, because that's the only uh, way I could get relief, which is humbling. But um, for 12 years, it's, it's been constant pain and, and fear of causing, doing something that would cause more pain. It's been really hard. But I can honestly say that I can rejoice in this trial. Not because I'm thankful for the pain, but because I am so eternally thankful for what God has done in me and through me because of the pain. And so the reason that this is true is because of the reasons Peter gives in this verse. So if you look back down, so I just want to give you from this passage a few reasons why I am able to rejoice in my trial of back pain so that you can maybe hopefully pull the truth from this passage and therefore rejoice in whatever trial you are going through or have been going through or will go through. So number one, I rejoice in my pain because my faith has proven to be genuine. So when I'm awake at night because the pain is too much to sleep, by God's grace, my heart is soft and I'm not cursing God. I'm praying to him and asking him and and praising him because I am reminded that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And so I know that even if I'm not getting enough sleep for the next day, I know that his mercies will sustain me. And I know that if I can trust in God in the midst of my pain, then my faith is genuine. That this is, and this is what Peter says in verse 7. He says that trials act like a test to burn away what is false and, to, and what remains is true. And my faith has survived the t- trial. Therefore, I have the confidence that my faith is genuine. And if you consider what we just went over in the previous verses, the fact that I have genuine faith in Christ proves that I have been born again. It proves that I have an inheritance kept in heaven safely for me. It proves that I will spend all of eternity with Jesus. And I know this because my faith has survived the test of back pain. Therefore, I rejoice because I know that this pain is temporary, but what it has done to confirm in my soul what is waiting for me in heaven because of Jesus this life, the, the glory that awaits me will, will be for all eternity. It has helped me rejoice in my pain because God has used it to help me not live for this world, but to live longing for the next. Number two, I rejoice in my pain because it gives me the opportunity to store up treasures in heaven. Look at the end of verse seven. This is amazing. Being faithful in the midst of trials will, quote, result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever we see praise and glory and honor in the Bible, it's usually safe to assume that God is the recipient. But in this verse, the recipient is the believer who endures the trials. So if you think about Matthew 25, 23, it's a a parable that Jesus is telling, and, and the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So that's the idea here, that Jesus is saying that he who is faithful in this life over a little will enter into the joy of his master, receiving praise and honor for how he was faithful, and then that he will receive a greater glory through the form of increased uh, treasures in heaven. So 
But just like the servant receives praise and reward from his master for his faithfulness, we who endure trials in this life for the sake of God's glory will receive praise and reward from the Lord Jesus for being faithful in the midst of trials. And just just think about how amazing that will be. I mean, God has wired us to appreciate and to desire praise from those who we look up to. I mean, just think about your job, how much you desire to please your boss, how much you desire words of affirmation and approval from your boss. Or if, if you're still in the home, think about how much you desire that from your parents or from someone you look up to. And God has wired us. That's not all sinful. Obviously, that can become sinful. But God has given us a holy desire to desire to receive praise and honor from those we look up to. And so can you imagine receiving praise and approval from the Lord Jesus? Can you imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, well done, good and faithful servant? So I can rejoice in my back pain because I know that my endurance through the pain, I know that my endurance through the pain telling the world that even in the midst of pain, I will not curse God, I will trust God, I will love God because his steadfast love is better than life. That is pleasing to my Lord. And this, therefore, this pain has given me the opportunity to, bring pray, to, to, be, to please my Lord and therefore to earn reward in heaven. And that I rejoice. For that I rejoice. Number three, I rejoice in my pain because it fuels my love for the Lord Jesus. I mean, this is, this is the biggest one. Constant pain has a way of stripping me of the delusion that anything in this world can satisfy. I'll never forget I was on a beach in Hawaii with my family, whom I love. And the sun was shining. It was a beautiful day, perfect temperature. I even had a strawberry banana smoothie, I think. And does it, I mean, does it get any better than that? That's what we think of when we think of paradise in this life. And yet in that day, I was in a lot of pain. And all of the pleasures of this world could not overcome the physical pain. When you're in pain, you don't enjoy the sunshine. You don't enjoy the beach. You just think about your pain and how it's, it's frustrating because it's hindering you from being able to enjoy the vacation that you've looked forward to so much. But you know what physical pain can't do? Physical pain cannot keep my soul from tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Physical pain cannot keep my heart from saying with the psalmist, because your steadfast love is better than life. Sorry, my lips will still praise you. Because when pain and trials take away the pleasures of this world, Jesus is still enough. And when he takes away everything and all you have is him and he is enough, it gives you reason to rejoice. Therefore, my trial has confirmed in my heart that Jesus is enough. Jesus is all I need. And as Peter says in verse 8, in the midst of trials, though you have not seen him, you love him. My pain keeps me from loving this world, and it fuels my love for Jesus. Because this world cannot satisfy, no matter how, Satan, how much Satan wants you to think it can. It cannot satisfy. But Jesus can. And if Jesus gives you a trial that helps you realize that, it is reason for rejoice. That is grace. It is grace to strip you from the delusion to think that this world can satisfy. That is grace. And for that, I rejoice. <laughs> 
In addition to that, as difficult as my back pain is, I know the pain is merely a fraction of what Jesus experienced in my place on the cross. I know that my back pain does not even compare to the pain and suffering Jesus saved me from in hell that I deserve. Pain in this life fuels my love for the Lord Jesus because it provides a tangible reminder of what he has saved me from. And I have that as a, a constant reminder that when I'm in pain, I can say, Lord, this is really hard, but hell would be much harder. And thank you for saving me from hell. Thank you for saving me, Lord Jesus. Therefore, Harvest Lakeshore, I do not know what trials you are going through. But in the midst of your various trials, set your hope fully on the reasons you have for rejoicing. Last point for today. Sorry, I didn't expect to get emotional. <clears throat> in the midst of various trials, set your hope fully on your privileged position in redemptive history. Set your hope fully on your privileged position in redemptive history. This might be one of the best paragraphs in all the Bible, if that's possible. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the salvation that we've just been talking about, the salvation that you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, the salvation that you have not only a place, eternal life, but a place to live that life. Concerning this salvation, the fact that you have a glorious, undefiled, unperishable, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you, being guarded by the power of God, Concerning this salvation, that no matter what trials you go through in this life, it can be proving that your faith is genuine, so that it can be proving that you have this glorious salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. So as Peter is unpacking the glory, <laughs> the glories of our salvation in this paragraph, he takes a step back and he basically summarizes all of redemptive history so that believers in Jesus can consider their privileged position in redemptive history. Because the reality is, ever since the fall in the garden, God's people have been longing to know how God would save his people. Ever since the fall, God's people have been longing to know who God would send to save his people. Ever since the fall, God's people have been longing to know how God would save his people. Moses longed to know the identity of the prophet who would be greater than he. David longed to know the identity of his son who would sit on his throne forever and ever ushering in the glorious messianic kingdom. Isaiah longed to know the identity of the suffering servant. The holy men of old searched the scriptures longing to know how God's plan for redemption would unfold. And they knew some things, and they believed that God would save, and that, that faith saved them. But they did not know who, they did not know how, and they did not know when. But what the prophets prophesied about the gospel, gospel preachers now preach as fact. Living on this side of the cross, we 
Harvest Lakeshore, we know that 2,000 years ago, the incarnate Son of God was born of a virgin in the city of David. We know he lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death on the cross, and rose the third day, conquering sin and death so that whoever believes in him will be saved. And if you look at verse 7, or verse 11, it says, the Spirit of Christ was was inspiring the prophets to write, indicating what time this, uh, indicating that they would predict the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the same person who was going to be suffering was the same one inspiring the prophets to write about the future suffering of the Christ. And so this, I mean, this is just precious. It means that when Jesus came, he didn't just look at the state of the world and see, well, I guess dying is the only way that I can save them. What this means, it wasn't just a kind of a God, like a salvaging of a tragic accident. What this is saying is that Jesus planned to come and die for us. Jesus is the one who, with the Father in the Spirit, wrote the story before it even happened. So before Jesus got up on the cross, before the foundation of the world, before they even created us, Ephesians 1 says, in him, before the foundation of the world, we have been chosen. And the way that we are chosen in Christ is through his death and resurrection. Therefore, when God created us, he knew that Jesus would have to come and die for us. And likewise, through the prophets, Jesus was helping them prophesy the suffering servant. He was helping them prophesy that Jesus would come and die for us. And so this wasn't just his response in the moment. It is what Jesus has been planning for all of eternity, and he did it. And we know that he did it because of his great love for us. Likewise, we have books like Romans and Ephesians to explain the glories of what God has done for us in Christ. We have books like Revelation that tell us how this grand story of redemption is going to end. Just think about the privilege we have of living on this side of the cross. And the story of salvation is so great, so glorious, so marvelous, that angels in heaven are looking down, captivated by what God is doing. But these angels can merely watch as spectators. They are not recipients of this great salvation. But we are. We were dead, but now are alive. We were lost, but now have been found. We know what it means to be separated from God and then reconciled to him. We know what it, was, what it is like to be dead in our trespasses and sins and yet to be born again to a living hope. And being recipients of this great love, he, I mean, he who has forgiven much loves much. We know what it's like to be forgiven. So consider the privileged position we have in redemptive history. We don't just get to observe the greatest story ever written. We are in it. We are the recipients of it. And if angels who are in heaven, I mean, imagine how much they have to do in heaven. It's not like they're bored. But this story is so great, so marvelous that they're looking down from heaven marveling at what God is doing, marveling at how God is unfolding the story, his plan for redemption. Therefore, Harvest Lakeshore, as you endure trials of various kinds, do not lose heart. Set your hope fully on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For your biggest problem has been solved. You were dead, but now you are alive. You have been born again to a living hope. And set your hope fully on your heavenly inheritance. No matter what you lose in this life, you and your heavenly inheritance are being guarded by the power of God. 
And this inheritance is greater than your heart can even imagine. And in the midst of the trials, set your hope on the many reasons you have for rejoicing. For God is using your suffering to prove the genuineness of your faith. He is using it to increase your treasures in heaven, and he's using it to fuel your love for the Lord Jesus. And lastly, set your hope on your privileged position in redemptive history. The prophets long to know what you know. The angels long to receive what you have received. For you have, <clears throat> are a born-again child of God, bought with the precious blood of Jesus. No matter your trials, set your hope on this. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word that is able to encourage the weary, that is able to bind the brokenhearted, that is able to give courage and strength to those who are suffering, that is able to shave, to be able, that is able to conform sinners into the image of Christ, that is able to raise the spiritual dead, that we may be born again to a living, everlasting hope. And Lord, we thank you that you are doing all of these things for your glory, that through the church you may bring praise forevermore to you and your Son and your Spirit. And Lord, we pray that we would recognize the incredible hope that we have because of Jesus. And we pray that this would give us hope to endure the trials in a way that we give praise to you, in a way that we put off the passions of our former ignorance, in a way that we are holy as you are holy, so that we can live a life that is fully devoted to you because we know the hope that we have for all of eternity. Lord, help our hearts set our hope on this because of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.